another Apollo Papyrus episode. I am Aaron Apollo Camp. For this episode, I had the opportunity to interview someone who is the author of five books, three of which are part of the American Trilogy Historical Fiction Series. His name is Sam Foster, and here's my interview with Sam. Sam Foster, welcome to Apollo Papyrus. Thank you, Aaron. I'm grateful to be here. Feel free to introduce yourself to our listeners. Of course. Uh, my name is Sam Foster. Um, I have made most of my life uh, in or around Los Angeles, but my ancestral hometown is Beardstown, Illinois, which is an old river port on the Illinois River. Um, when I, it, it, it was a city which was very prosperous in the 19th century. But when I was growing up, it was uh, it was declining. Um, and I remember when I got out of school, I came to Los Angeles to college and I never even contemplated going home. I just there there wasn't any future there anymore. Uh, during my adulthood, that little town, which was a beautiful and prosperous little city, has declined even further and quite literally, Aaron, um, there are now, you can drive through town and see residential lots where the house has simply collapsed and been scraped off and has double wide trailers sitting on it. Uh, it's just, it, it's not the place that I grew up and it has such a wonderful and immense history. It saddens me, of course. Uh, every time I get within a couple hundred miles, I go say hello to my grandmother and grandfathers and stand over their their stones and leave grandma a few flowers. So I see it periodically, but but it's a, it's a very sad decline, Aaron. Yeah, I live about 120, 130 miles east of Beardstown in Westville, Illinois, and several miles to my north is Danville, Illinois, which is somewhat bigger than Beardstown, but like Beardstown has a lot of vacant lots where houses or businesses once stood and is way past its heyday. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, it's particular. I mean, I suppose, Aaron, it's particularly sad to me. I mean, I have written this story um, and the story is, is Michener-esque in that it puts a pin on the map and follows that spot for 230 years. And that spot is the Mascouten Bay, the Mascouten Bay being the geological fixture, uh, uh, geological formation that made Beardstown such a brilliant place to put a river port. And uh, so th that's the story of that area. The, if I, if I may, may I, may I tell your audience about the books or would you prefer I not monologue and, and allow just respond to your queries? My next question involves uh, three of your books and uh, you made a, a reference to it just a few seconds ago, but you've written the books of the American trilogy, which are in order, A Panther Crosses Over, Beardstown and American Pie Piper. Without spoiling too much of each of these books, what are each of them about? Easy to tell. Also easy for me to get lost because I've spent five years doing this, but I'll try to make it brief. Uh, the first book, uh, A Panther Crosses Over, uh, that 
that English phrase is the translation of the Shawnee word Tecumseh. Tecumseh probably being the most famous native warrior in the history of America. I mean, William Tecumseh Sherman was named for him and in fact was simply named Tecumseh Sherman until he went to West Point, which he gave himself a Christian name at that point. Uh, it, it is the story after the uh, American uh, Revolution, actually after the French and Indian War, settlers simply rushed down the Ohio River. And that century, they simply took over uh, the old Northwest Territory. That would be, of course, as you well know, being there, uh, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, and Michigan. Although when I say the Northwest Territory to my friends on the West Coast, they think I'm talking about Oregon and Washington, but we all know <laughs> it's not. Uh, but the, it, it is the story of the, of the combat between those two civilizations. And that story has been told many times, but I think the thing that is most unique about A Panther Crosses Over, it is that it is told entirely from the Shawnee perspective, entirely. And so it's not my intention to revile William Henry Harrison or the white settlers, but it is from the Shawnee perspective. The, the second book, Beardstown, uh, starts when uh, Thomas Beard simply shows up at the Mascoutin Bay on the Illinois River with nothing but a few trade goods for Indians and a tripod and transom to survey. He was a surveyor. And his vision was not to homestead and run a farm. His vision from the very beginning was to build a city. And Beardstown is simply the story of the building of that city, starting with a simple trading post uh, and ending up. Um, and, and I don't, per, perhaps being from Beardstown, uh, I, I have a biased point of view here, but Beardstown was indeed the port which developed the entire of central Illinois. Most of what went into building the Springfield capital, except the stone, all, all came through the port of Beardstown. Uh, they built a, a plank road, a corduroy road out of trees between Beardstown and Springfield to haul the goods. Uh, if it came into Rushville or any of the other uh, now small cities around there, it came through Beardstown. And trade is wealth. And I think we all know that. And so that city was probably the most prosperous, cultured, and richest city in the center of Illinois in the beginning half of the 19th century. Uh, they were clever enough that they knew the railroad was going to, uh, was going to, to, to reduce river trade. And that city in the 1850s floated a $150,000 bond to build a railroad bridge across the Illinois River to induce what was then the, the Rockford and Rock Island Railroad to come through Beardstown. And they spent so much money doing it that they got the Rockford and Rock Island to actually build a roundhouse and a shop there. And at one point when Beardstown had a population of 11 or 12,000 people, over a thousand jobs were with the railroad. Uh, it was when the railroad left in the late 30s that the city started to climb. They simply never could make up for that. And that book, Beardstown, is a book with a good ending, a happy ending. It ends in prosperity and wealth, but it literally goes from nothing to how a city develops. 
I remember one of my reviewers was unkind or thought she was unkind. She said that uh, there's no character development in this entire story. Everybody ends up exactly the way they started with the exception of the city. The only thing that grows is the city. And she made me smile because that was the point. The book was really not about Thomas Beard. It was really about the development of a city. Uh, the last book, American Pied Piper, does not come. Uh, there, there's a gap between Beardstown and American Pied Piper of about 30 years. And it starts right after the turn of the 20th century. Uh, and indeed, what it does is follow Beardstown and in truth, the entire Midwest through a period of decline that comes when all of the traffic, all of the manufacturing, all of the wealth moved to the cities in the Midwest. It moved to Chicago and Cleveland, uh, to, the, to, to, to uh, Detroit, and the cities died. Um, and I sort of track in that story, and it is a story, uh, the reasons for, for that decline. But I think I think the title, American Pied Piper, tells it all. And while it is a novel and fictionalized, it is absolutely based on the history of the place. But after World War II, um, a young um, uh, lawyer who was from Beardstown, his family from Beardstown for multiple generations, who had gone to school in Yale, uh, went, to graduate, went to law school at Columbia, became a member of the Judge Advocate General's Corps in World War II and went to London. His entire growing life after his teen years had been surrounded and absorbed by more traditional societies, less, less places of frontier, less places of sharp elbows and moral people, but people who didn't adhere to the law too closely. If it got in their way, they just went ahead and did what was necessary. The town at that point had become a fairly typical river town like Natchez, Mississippi, and it was fraught with vice. Uh, it was fraught with gambling and prostitution. It was fought with the, if you, if you will allow me, the accoutrements of what goes into a frontier mentality. And this fellow came back and ran for state's attorney, uh, won, and when he was running, he never said anything in his campaign. They just knew his family's name. They knew him. They trusted the name. He never said what he would do. And two days after he was elected, he shut down every gambling game in town, including the, the penny ante games at places like the Elk Clubs and the Masonic Lodge. Uh, he, he obviously stopped all the prostitution uh, he, he absolutely stopped. He, he took the slot machine out of the, the, uh, the local drugstore. Um, and he, he took out, and my position on this, and it's fairly clear in the book, is that, uh, and the reason it's called American Pied Piper, he took out the creativity of the city too. And I don't know how many of your, your listeners are familiar with, with the tale of the Pied Piper, but, um, it was set during the medieval era in Germany at a place called Hamlin, Germany, and they couldn't get rid of the rats. And so this fella came to town and he said, I can get rid of the rats. Um, and he stood in the middle of town and played his little flute 
and all the rats came to them and he walked them into the river and drowned them. And everybody thinks that's the end of the story. But if you read Grimm's Brothers, it's not the end of the story. The town refused to pay him. And so he walked back into the middle of the square, played his pipe, played a different tune. This time, the tune he played brought all the children. He walked them all into the river and drowned them. The point was that the piper cleaned up the city of its rats, in this case, river rats, but he also left the city bereft of any youth and creativity. Um, and in my opinion, it is that lack of the ability to think beyond the ordinary, which has been as responsible for the decline of Beardstown as anything else. And um, I, I admit, Aaron, that I have been cautious about going to Beardstown and having readings there. They have received me very well, but in truth, I thought they would probably be angry with me. What drew you to write historical fiction? Ha <laughs> um, Aaron, you're a creative. You, you run this podcast with a modern sense of creativity and, and, and how we reach out to the world. I'm a much older man than you. Um, my sense of creativity goes back to books. And um, I did not grow up with money um, until my older sister left home, I slept on the couch. We, I, I didn't think of us as poor, but by current standards, we certainly were. But when I got out of school um, and, and I did go to college, uh, and then I went in the Marine Corps during the Vietnam era. But when, when I got out, as interested as I was in writing, I was much more interested in having money. And so I went to work in American business, uh, but I've always been a reader. I'm a voracious reader and I've always tried to write a little bit. At some point when I had finally made enough money that my mortgage was paid off um, and I had a position in the business community in downtown LA, um, I had gotten both of my kids through college. I had time, I had energy. I started to write. And my first two books were always novels. I've never, I've never written anything that was not uh, a novel, a story. Um, my first two books I wrote while I was working. And I would write a few evenings. I would write Sunday afternoons. Frequently, when I could, I would leave the office and walk a few blocks to the LA library and sit in a cubicle in the library and write. Um, and, and it pleased me. Uh, some guys play golf, but it pleased me to write. But both of those stories were contemporary modern stories. They were fiction. One of them was about business in L.A. And one of them was about um, the Marine Corps during Vietnam. They were fictional stories, but contemporary. But I did find my interest has always been historic fiction. When I was 15 years old, the summer I was 15, when I turned 16, um, I got a hold of James Michener's Hawaii. The, the damn thing was 800 pages long, and I was scared to death of it. And I absolutely fell in love with it. Um, it took me the whole summer to read it. Uh, I'd lay on the couch when I wasn't working and read. That's always been the sort of thing that amuses me and interests me most. So... <clears throat> I decided, and I decided a long time ago, I was going to write this trilogy, this story. <clears throat> Although I'm kind of smiling because I think of it as one book. And when I wrote it, it was 1,300 pages. 
And so I was left with a choice. And the choice was if I thought it was one story at 1300 pages, I could have it published that way, but nobody was gonna read it. Americans don't read Tolstoy-esque linked novels. And so I, I broke it into a trilogy, one for each century, the 18th, 19th and 20th century. But I had had that in my head and it had percolated for years, Aaron, just for years. But I didn't want to write it until I could write full time. I didn't want to write it until I was dabbling at it. So I retired uh, some seven years ago. And, and that's when I started. That, that's when I started then. And, and frankly, the, the last book, American Pie Piper, came out in October. And, and I'm a little bereft of something to do. I'm kind of I'm sad. I miss the work. I'll, I'll have to find another story to write. You've written a couple of other books, Alpha Male and Non-Simper Fidelis. Without spoiling yes. too much of those books, what are they about? Alpha Male is, uh, is real easy. Um, alpha Male, it, I was in the commercial real estate business. And Alpha Male is about a real estate hustle set during the RTC days in the 80s. And it's all set throughout Southern California. It's a bit of a tour of Southern California. Every scene is in a different place. The beach, the mountains, a fishing boat, downtown LA. Uh, but, it's, but it's a real estate hustle. It's a bit of a mystery. And, and I will admit, Aaron, <clears throat> that I don't think I did it real well. It is still the most popular book I've ever written. Everybody in the commercial real estate business in LA read it. And, and people in the commercial real estate business around the rest of the country read it too. I remember being in a meeting in Florida with a bunch of people I didn't know and we all had name tags on. And some guy, I saw him walking straight toward me across the room. And he walked up and he stuck his hand out and he said, I loved your book. And, and so that was the first one. Um, Non-Semper Fidelis, uh, most of your will probably know that the motto of the United States Marine Corps is Semper Fidelis, which translation from Latin is always. Um, Non-Semper Fidelis does not translate to never faithful. It translates to not always faithful. It is an interesting story about the Marine Corps set in the Vietnam era, but the entire story is told stateside. There is not a shot fired in anger in it, but it is about the use and abuse of power. And it is a story about uh, men in the Marine Corps who use power beautifully, wonderfully, know exactly what they are doing. They are perfect commanders. They know how to behave and how to behave when, and they get the most out of their men, whether their men like it or not, but they get the most out of them. And my experience in the Marine Corps was, and mind you, I was in during Vietnam when the Marine Corps was bulking up as fast as it could. And there were a lot of people like me who were young college graduates that if you will forgive my language, didn't know shit about authority or how to manage it. Um, and some of those people ruined lives because of their incompetence, their lack of understanding. Not that they were, not that they were bad human beings, uh, probably more than anything else, they were scared. And they didn't know how to behave except exactly as the book told them to behave. And sometimes that ruined people's lives unnecessarily. So, so that story is a, is a study in the use of power. 
are all your books self-published or all your books traditionally published or all your books published by a hybrid press or did you use different publishing methods for your books? Yes, to the latter. Uh, my first two books were published by a, uh, a, a, a really a third rate tertiary. And when I say third rate, I don't mean lacking in quality. I just mean very small. A third rate publishing house called Daniel and Daniel. Um, when I wrote the first book, I did what, what writers traditionally do. I set out to seek an agent and I got, I, I got, I probably got an inch thick stack of rejections that I still have with a big paperclip on them just to remind me and motivate me. But there was a gentleman in New York who explained the facts of life to me. He bothered to do it. And he broke my heart, but he made me understand. He wrote me a letter. I had sent him the book and asked if he wanted to agent it. He wrote me a letter back. And it was very clear in the letter that he'd read the book and he liked the book. And I remember reading it the first two or three paragraphs. And I thought, whoopee, I've got an agent here. And then he said at the end of it, in the last paragraph, he said, but I am paid by receiving 15% of any advance that my authors receive. And the advance, I 15% of the advance I would get you for this book is not worth me taking two potential buyers to lunch. Good luck. And so then I gave up on getting an agent, but that meant you couldn't work with any of the first rate publishing houses. So I started submitting it to the second tier houses and then the third tier houses. And I remember one day at work, I, my phone rang. I got a call. Guy said his name was John Daniel. I'm always polite to strangers on the phone. Uh, so I was polite, but I didn't know who John Daniel was. And as he got talking to him, I realized that he was the John Daniel in Daniel and Daniel, and that he was a publishing house. And he had all my attention. And once John realized he had my attention, he, he said to me the following. He said, look, Sam, he said, Daniel and Daniel is my wife, Susan, and I. I'm John, she's Susan, Daniel, we're the Daniel and Daniel. We're in the publishing business. We make our business, we make our living producing cookbooks and self-help books. But we're like everybody in the publishing business. What we like is stories. So we have a little imprint called Fithian Books, and Fithian Books would like to publish your story. But Sam, before you say yes, know that Fithian Books doesn't make us any money. And if Fithian publishes your book, you probably won't either. Now, in the end, I did make some money on the book because it sold well. But John was being very direct with me. Um, and that is something I admire greatly uh, in businessmen. Is, is not to pretend to hustle, but simply lay out the fact and, and let the buyer decide. And I, I loved John and Susan. They were great to me. But after my second book was published, while I was writing the trilogy, John died of Parkinson's and Susan didn't want to run the operation anymore. So she closed it down. And Susan was kind enough to give me rights to both books back to me. I own them again. And then I started looking for how... I was going to um, I was going to I was going to publish the trilogy, and I have a friend, a guy named Charlie Newton, who is quite a successful author of mysteries. 
And Charlie set me down and said, Sam, he said, when I started this business, I, I desperately needed an agent in a New York publishing house. And my first eight books, I struggled. They were small publishing houses. I didn't have the best agent. And he said, finally, on my eighth agent, on my eighth book, I got picked up by the same agent who had represented Dan Brown when he wrote The Da Vinci Code, and he sold the novel to a major New York publishing house, and I thought, whoopee, I'm at the top of the mountain, I have made it. And he said, and when I got there to the top of the mountain, I found out there was no there there. And I said, what does that mean, Charlie? And he said, Sam, he said, publishing houses used to be able to nurture their writers and lead them along and help them and show them grow and go through. He said, but publishing, because of Amazon, because Amazon sells about half the books in America, because Amazon takes a 35% scrape on everything they do, they have effectively taken, and if you're following the math, They've simply taken 17% out of the whole publishing industry. And he said, publishing houses, he said, I'm not damning them, but he said they can simply no longer afford to nurture people like you along. He said, all they can do and the best they can do is kick the baby bird out of the nest and hope one or two of them fly. Now there are 4,500 books a day copywritten in America. They have an immense amount of, of, uh, of options as to what they pick up and what they put out. But whoever they pick up and whoever they put out, they don't have any time to market it. They don't have any time to do much with it at all except put it out, send it to bookstores and hope it sells. And he said, for new guys like you, that's almost impossible. So I found <clears throat> when you get into that, if, and if any of your listeners are thinking about self-publishing a book, um, the number of steps between a finished manuscript and a finished book, I have got a three page single spaced list of all of the steps required from here to there. Three pages of it, single spaced. And every one of those things cost money to do. Um, there is an outfit in Seattle, and I don't mind touting them at all because they've been great to me, called Girl Friday Productions. And Girl Friday, as you can imagine, are middle-aged women because no women your age, Aaron, would call themselves Girl Friday. That's just not <laughs> popular ladies, right? <clears throat> but they're all out of the publishing business, all of them. And every one of those steps, somebody in that organization has expertise at. So you send your manuscript to Girl Friday and they want to know two things. They want to know how many words it is and they want to know which one of the steps you want them to do. And they'll send you a price. And you look at the price for doing all that and you gulp really hard and go, Jesus, I, I, I don't want to spend that money. And Girl Friday just smiles and said, great, which one of the steps do you want us to take out? I mean, it's almost like the famous Mozart line when the emperor tells him you use too many notes and he says, great sire, which ones do you want me to remove? Same deal. You just tell them what you want and they do it. But the quality of work those women do is unbelievable. Um, I, if, if we were an audio podcast, I would simply show you 
one of the books they have produced for me and the quality of it. So it's rather a hybrid model. Um, Girl Friday is not self-publishing, but neither it is having a publisher who pick up all the bills. I only have a few minutes uh, left in this interview, so I'm going to ask one final question. What was your friendship with Al Sparless like? You know, Al Sparless was a, an absolute titan in my business. I mean, Sparless sold the old MGM backlot for a little development that's become known as Century City. Sparless sold some 400 acres of swampy, salty ground that was only good for growing lettuce for a development that's been called Marina del Rey. Sparless was a lion, but Sparless was good to young men. He, he could be harsh. He had a great set of expectations for everybody around him, and he never flexed them. Um, so he was not exactly your grandfather, but he certainly was not a jerk to young men like me. Uh, I, I adored Sparles. I just adored him. Uh, for, for, for those of your readers who don't know who Al Sparles is, he was UCLA's first football All-American. And he played on UCLA's team of 41, 42, and 45. You get the gap, but 43 and 44, and you know where Sparles was. World War II. World War II. He flew for Chenault in China. Uh, he flew in the Korean War. He was part of a squadron that flew. And out of the squadron, only seven of them came back alive. Um, and during Vietnam, uh, Sparless was very forceful, incredibly forceful. And during Vietnam, he, he, he volunteered. He wanted to fly again, and they wouldn't let him. And they told him he was too old. And he wasn't putting up with that. Sparless during Vietnam ended up flying back and forth between LA and Hawaii. And he was taking live, live bodies to Hawaii for transfer to Westpac. And he was bringing dead bodies back. Sparless flew in three wars. Sam, you were an absolutely amazing guest. And I thank you for appearing on Apollo Papyrus. Oh, Aaron, that's so very kind of you. I'm terribly grateful. I'm terribly grateful. That really is nice. Thank you. And if there's ever anything I can do for you, Aaron, you've done a wonderful thing for me. If there's ever anything I can do for you, you know how to get a hold of me. It was wonderful to interview Sam, and I look forward to writing some historical fiction works of my own. This is Aaron Apollo Camp reminding y'all to write and read your passion. Bye for now. Remember to subscribe to the Apollo Papyrus YouTube channel at www.youtube.com forward slash at Apollo Papyrus and the Apollo Papyrus Substack newsletter at apollopapyrus.substack.com. Y'all can visit the Apollo Papyrus website at camparinapollo.witsite.com forward slash Apollo Papyrus and follow Apollo Papyrus on threads, Instagram, Facebook, and Tumblr at Apollo Papyrus. Copyright 2024, Aaron Apollo Camp, all rights reserved. This podcast episode is intended for the private listening of our audience. Any reuse or retransmission of this episode without the express written consent of the podcast host is prohibited, except under fair use guidelines. Royalty-free music and sound effects obtained from https colon forward slash forward slash www.zapsplat.com. <laughs>